I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Yeah, I'm going to start with something very obvious because of, I mean, this is inaugural eve in the States, and, and it's like, it is a bit of the eve of a nightmare, and, and I feel like one that America is not keeping to itself. An American poem. I was born in Boston in 1949. I never wanted this fact to be known. In fact, I've spent the better half of my adult life trying to sweep my early years under the carpet and have a life that was clearly just mine and independent of the historic fate of my family. Can you imagine what it was like to be one of them? To talk like them, to be built like them, to, to be born into such a wealthy and powerful American family. I went to the best schools. I had all kinds of tutors and trainers. I traveled widely. I met the famous, the controversial, and the not so admirable. And I knew from a very early age that if there were ever any possibility of escaping the collective fate of this famous Boston family, I would take that route, and I have. I hopped on an Amtrak to New York in the early 70s, and I guess you could say my hidden years began. I thought, well, I'll be a poet. What could be more foolish and obscure? I became a lesbian. Every woman in my family, it's okay to laugh at dykes. It's all, every woman in my family looks like a dyke, but it's really stepping off the flag when you become one. Well, holding this ignominious pose, I have seen and I have learned, and I'm beginning to think there's no escaping history. A woman I'm currently having an affair with said, you know, you look like a Kennedy. I felt the blood rising in my cheeks. People have always laughed at my Boston accent, confusing large for large, party for party. But when this unsuspecting woman invoked for the first time my family name, I knew the jig was up. Yes, I am. I am a Kennedy. My efforts to remain obscure have not served me well. Starting as a humble poet, I quickly climbed to the top of my profession, assuming a position of leadership and honor. It is right that a woman should call me out now. Yes, I am a Kennedy, and I await your orders. You are the new Americans. The homeless are wandering the streets of our nation's greatest city. Homeless men with AIDS are among them. Is that right? That there's no homes for the homeless? That there's no free medical help for these men and women? That they get the message that as they are dying, that this is not their home. And how are your teeth today? Can you afford to fix them? How high is your rent? If art is the highest and most honest form of communication of our times, and the young artist is no longer able to move here and speak to her time, Yes, I could, but that was 15 years ago. And remember, as I must, I am a Kennedy. Shouldn't we all be Kennedys? This nation's greatest city is home of the businessman, home of the rich artist, 
people with beautiful teeth who are not on the streets. What should we do about this dilemma? Listen, I have been educated. I have learned about Western civilization. Do you know what the message of Western civilization is? I am alone. Am I alone tonight? I don't think so. Am I the only one with bleeding gums in this room tonight? Am I the only homosexual in this room? Am I the only one whose friends have died or are dying now? And my art can't be supported until it is gigantic, bigger than everyone else's, confirming the audience's feeling that they are alone, that they alone are good, deserved to buy the tickets to see this art, are working, are healthy, should survive, and are normal. You normal tonight? Everyone here, we all normal. It is not normal for me to be a Kennedy, but I am no longer ashamed, no longer alone. I'm not alone tonight because we are all Kennedys, and I am your president. Um, hey, it, it feels weird and different and actually good. The thing that's so horrible about this problem is I wrote it in the 80s when all this, it was under Reagan and everything was so awful and of course we had no health insurance and of course there was no money for the arts and you know as we know Trump or some of you guys know Trump announced today that he was going to completely cut the National Endowment for the Arts, which was something, one of the great things that Kennedy did, weirdly. And also that, um, and of course they're getting rid of health insurance. Why would we need health insurance? The Republicans will come up with something better. So it's just on the eve of a nightmare, this poem seems even realer. And oddly, um, so I am from Boston, in fact, and, um, and I did a, I did a, um, I did like a, you know, like a thing at Harvard like last spring, which was ironic because I'm like Boston working class, so I was like did a little residency at Harvard. And to get money from Harvard, I had to make up something using their recording library. So I said, I'm doing research on the Boston accent, you know, and they, they love that, you know, po on poets with Boston accents. Um, and what I learned that's so weird is that the Boston accent is like people who immigrated from the UK in the 17th century, a rural, it's a rural British accent from the 17th century that went two places, um, Boston and, and Australia. So then next, weirdly, I went to Australia where for the first time nobody ever said, you're from Boston. People always think they're so brilliant. They're like, you're from Boston, aren't you? My grandmother's from Boston. <laughs> But they couldn't hear me in Australia, which was so great. So they probably didn't even get the poem when I read it. I was like, Let's, she's from. So let me read a few more from this book, and then I'll read. I think I have a new poem, and then I want to read something from Jealousy Girls, too. Um, this is called Each, Each Defeat. Please keep reading me, Blake, because you're going to make me the greatest poet of all time. Keep smoothing the stones in the driveway. Let me fry an egg on your ass and I'll pick up the mail. I feel your absence in the morning and imagine your instant mouth. Let me move in with you, traveling, wrapping your limbs on my back. I grow man, woman, child. I see wild, wild, wild. Keep letting the day be massive, unlicensed. Oh, please have my child. I'm a little controlling. Prose has some magic. Morgan had a whore in her lap. You big fisherman, I love my friends. I want to lean my everything with you, make home for your hubris. I want to read the words you circled over and over again. A slow skunk walking across the road, yellow, just kind of pausing. Picked up the warm laundry. I just saw a coyote, tippy, tippy, tippy. I didn't tell you about the creature with hair, long hair. It was hit by cars on the highway again and again. It had long gray hair. It must have been a dog. It could have been Oz. Everyone loses their friends. I couldn't tell anyone about this sight. Each defeat is sweet. And this one's called Unnamed New York. And it's a little bit, I'm totally jet lagged, or not entirely, I'm, I'm semi jet lagged right now. 
But um, I taught in California for five years, and so I was continually coming back to New York. And I don't, I don't, I used to drink a lot and take a lot of drugs, and I don't do either now. So I'm always like desperate for altered states, and and one of them is jet lag. So I would get into New York, get on the subway, and then be like, oh my god, you know. And so this is kind of that sensation, unnamed New York. And it was when Ar Arnold, another fascist moment in America, when Arnold Schwarzenegger was coming into. Um, California, and a whole generation of people graduate from the University of California with his signature on their diplomas, which is sort of obscene. Here in the beautiful heat, digging and digging for you in your wide and wonderful paws, day subway, day doggy. I was trying to say it rights and bites, citizen, aged, local, literary, queer, cocksucking, shopping, pussy, manifesting, not will Arnold win. If you enjoyed smoking in bars, study French Expressionism, employ your loss, buy a car, take a course, make a college, buy something old again and again and again. The sneaker swings, I like it here. It's orange and my hands are free. The new book was composed by picking shit out of a wave. Whenever they said vague, I thought, vague? I couldn't help laughing standing at the bottom of my pit. I thought Mark Twain was here in the crater of a giant tomato. Big artists like era. The tomato missed. Being intended to hit God, it hit his mother. I speak for her. What is this voice thing going on? Do you hear this? Oh, it's people on the street. Pardon me? They have an, oh. We like a party. All right, I support you then. <laughs> this is, and this is this is called, and then the weather arrives. I don't know no one anymore who's up all night. Wouldn't it be fun to hear someone really tired come walking up your stairs and knock on your door? Come here and share the rain with me, you. Isn't it wonderful to hear the universe shudder, how old it all, everything, must be? How slow it goes, steaming coffee, marvelous morning, the tiniest hairs on the tree's arms coming visible. I like it better, no one knows sweetness, moving your lips in silence, closing your eyes all night. It's so much better disarming myself from terror and light passing through a painting I stuck on a window earlier when I was scared. It's great, it's really great. Trees hold the world and the weather moves slow. Even a body dissolves and takes a place incorrectly. Everywhere I would like to nuzzle and plants a heart in the world voiceless. I began knocking, ridiculous, just to hear your echo back, arm against face. Just to stop those fucking trucks, my thoughts are vanishing into that sweetness. In between poems, I feel like I'm hanging out with my friends out there. Sort of it's called Bone. It was raining out tonight. I missed your anywhereness. You push someone out of your life and you miss them in the most unexpected ways to come home and say, how are you? Each lack, each pit of the rain slowing down outside reminds me of your missing warmth, your regularity. I hated living with you. I had enough. I know you hate me for having said it with roses. I can't believe I'm back in this shitty place all alone, a dog bone on my desk. Everything, anywhere at once, I'd wind up writing to you in the tra like the traffic in the street. I'd wind up hearing our distant songs this morning. I wept like a fool, obediently, at one of the little things you sent me. You meant to make me cry. It's the black coffee of the morning. I'm lonely in the world, and I can sing 
send email, email, email. Leave eggs on the plate, there's one. The dog can destroy the couch by another one. I believe in the succession of values, sweetness following stuck. Play my horn in bed all alone, dirty, lost, and free. I feel like I should randomly tell you I love you or something. <laughs> okay, this is, this is called my box. Is that a slang in the UK for twat? Or it's just, which is, here, is where, there's, a whole thing about, there's a whole thing about Tampax, which is sort of about age in a way and dating a woman younger than you who still uses a product that you don't use anymore. And then the design of the product keeps changing and you're like, I don't even know that box. So, <laughs> right? It's like, orange? Oh. In terms of design, one box is colored orange, the one you wanted always is, and sits in the bathroom of anyone's house because that's what she wants. It's choosing that wakes things up. I wondered how long all that I needed and encountered here would come like a wave. Not the shake, but the after effects, and this box did say there was a way to see this thing alone. July called it calculus. What is comes in boxes. What is not comes in waves. The dots between mountains surround us, and I say they are more marvelous than the sea, way overhead. I like flying over them, too, thinking that is home, these crazy bumps. When we drive into them tomorrow, it won't be bam. It means up, swirling on the edge of a cup, and if you don't watch me like a hawk, I won't be scared. I want to be loved like a sunbeam. That is, it comes across the room or the ocean. You know the way I drive. I want to lift your fear like a bonnet and kiss your living face. Here, this is mine. Don't misunderstand me. Which is so weird because there's that way that you secretly really write poetry for your family who never hear it. You know, it was like anybody in the Miles family, if they heard, don't misunderstand me, like, oh, because my father was an alcoholic and he would get trashed and he would be like, don't misunderstand me. Don't, and you were like, whoa. Um, I'm going to read a new poem now, and then I'm going to read a little Chelsea Girls, and then I've got a, a, a political statement of the moment to read. No, this is actually this is a teeny little poem. This is good. It's called The Baby. The baby says to the old man, let's have a cup of coffee. The old man says, now you're talking. <laughs> Isn't that great? I send this to the New Yorker, and they don't take it. I was like, <laughs> he's like... Fuck you, you know? God. So this is, this is new, and it's called Sweetheart. Maybe there's some place in London I can publish it. What's that? OK. Hook, hook me up, please. Yeah. OK. So this, oh, I want to get my body in the right place. OK, Fresca's got a new, it's called Sweetheart, two words. Fresca's got a new look, but I'm not drinking that. My Coke struck, struck the ice and the ice cube cracked. I'm sitting by the little Buddha who is sitting in my yard. I imagine you walking in, gasping at the same couch, the same bed. It's almost the same town, but this is what I meant. And there's so much pleasure, difference in this, that. I meant to be here. One sleeps on what they mean and arises on the decided side, and that's the hope. An entire room is opened by particular feelings that say you're on the edge of the space, and then you wait to watch it grow. 
grow like a love or a feeling of distrust or a body grateful for sun and breeze and the rising and falling of my dog's chest, no gut. The little Buddha's smiling southeast, I figured that out. Their genitals are un unknown. In fact, they're everything smiling, walked on by ants planted in the dirt but not dead, activated by my gaze. Their smiling makes me glad. Dog turns Buddha's way. I go forward with confidence. I may turn nothing up but this gentle scratching in my yard before making a call, opening the self somehow so it's possible to have a friend to call. Not only from need but interest in their life, the body I'm pouring into, joyous to be connected to someone while covered by ants, surrounded by breeze, actually touched by birds, their sound, then landing. There is nothing romantic in their absence. The bird is all touched, no matter how distant their flight. The sky is open. My gaze is wide. It matters how they dive and hover. The silly cluck, the ninny constant, the hoot makes the gray sky blue. Trees brown, green, slanting trees. The woman dying in her face thought, am I recording? But it was the young man counting everything, Cora Crit whose art I liked so much last weekend in Sydney, performed Bird in the Dying Woman's Sky, so his quote was reverential, that she could be copying anything by dying was more about him. A mustache on the sound that life's made of. I think you don't miss me enough, or you regard me as seasons that simply come, and it's true, I'm everything. I used to love so much to show you my poems, but everything's not enough. You have to go out and shake everything's hand, and the tremendous feeling of everything is not shook enough. I'm sick of being God for you. I'm not Fresca or the Buddha or the bird. I'm the ice that cracks. I'm really feeling it now. The amazing difference of contact, everything's gasp. It begins so slow. Hours of freezing, waiting, a life and the draining of it by waiting too long. Riding around in a car. I'm not any Coke. I'm every Coke. And a bird likes the sound of that. To be so close, the earth pots for its own arrival. The time of day is enchanted by my genes on the line. I'm enchanted by everything, too. How could I be it and feel it? Drawing sunlight, sticks. If I say two again, and I'm creating a pattern, someone who doesn't love me will say, you say two too much. I suppose going blind is momentarily seeing colors and everything and remembering them for the rest of your life. I'm afraid to tell you I'm going blind. What I'm saying is I'm retiring from God. I will feel my genius quietly, the furrows of a dead tree accepting my love. You start like a car and pepper in a number of growls. That's dog. You roll in your bird, and Buddha's difficult now, more of an aside. There's something so different as the sun could turn, I think, and we're turning on our dirty little urn. There's a movie about everything, my getting this part of that, endlessly obliged to be wise. Upstairs, 16 little eggs turn in another galaxy, someone else's sandwich. Today, I was so busy, I didn't even see lunch. I had it, but I didn't see it at all. The distant eggs are turning for someone else. I poured Fresca into my glass, and then I poured my vodka, and then I got drunk. Darker day now when my throat fills and the Buddha's awake. A bee wants to sting me, and in that moment, I would notice everything. Why do you think I'm sweet? Why must I die? And I'm going to read a little teeny piece from a story in Chelsea Girls, and then I'm going to end with something that's sort of inaugural, not totally inaugural. 
Are you like thinking this is not the experience you came from? I hope it's all right. So this is called um, February 13th, 1982, and it's about a book party. And weirdly, I'm um, starting. I'm starting. I'm writing a screenplay on for Chelsea Girls. Like somebody's gonna make a movie out of it. So um, I'm having. I mean, it's very. I mean, again. Well, that's the. You know, that's like. There's this, that green light term, right? Like you write it, and then do they make it? You know, I don't know. But, um, but it's very weird. So I'm having to find all these like little mole trails through all these different chapters in the book, which is, which is kind of an adventure. Time passes, that's for sure. It's the nightmare of having what you want that I'm interested in today. I had a book party five years ago. It took place in New York where I live, and it was the beginning of the end for me. I'm a very different person today. Bill's coming over to build shelves in the kitchen. Things have a slow progression, kind of a pleasant listiness. A big part of my list is the past. I went over to Rose's to plan the book party. Power Mad Press, which was Barbara, was publishing my book. Barbara lived with Rose in a loft, and that's where we are going to have the party. Rose is an astrologer. She pointed to February 13th on her calendar. It's got to be this date, she said. Absolutely. But why, I asked. A lot of things will converge for you on this date. Your Mars, a lot of your aspects. I don't know how to explain it, but this is you. Maybe you don't want your party to be such an intense experience. It could be a lot quieter. It depends on what you want. Rose was like a lawyer or a salesman. You never knew if she was making this stuff up, if she had her finger on the pulsations of the orbs. And if she did, I mean, if she really had the power, was she on my side? I watched the way she played with her cats. What if she was just very powerful and intuitive, but to her, we were all just cats? It was an interesting place to be, and I decided to go with her suggestion. I made a very nice white on black invitation. I sent it to significant people. Mostly the party was publicized by word of mouth. I bought some cocaine. I was a very down and out person, glamorous but down and out, sort of a beer drinker, really, the kind of person who always had diet pills in her faded jean pockets. My main concern, really, was that I didn't get so drunk that I fell down or turned it into an embarrassing night in some way. It was an early evening event. I had slept with this girl who was a musician and who I was currently in love with. She left around noon, left me to my cigarettes and a nice foggy musing upon my pink floral sheets and the birds outside the window and the slender branches of the trees. I have an old cemetery outside my window and I felt like Keats in the 80s or something. I could feel the nervousness rising in me like some kind of strange spring inside and out. The winter had a ways to go, but there's always days in February when you forget that. For me to put down $100 for cocaine was something, but all in the service of this wonderful, amazing day, the long-awaited book, and of course, my new life. I suppose I had the typical horror of what if nobody shows up. I went over to the loft relatively early, and I know I was full of the deep calm of one who is in a total panic. I smoked significant cigarettes. The whole thing was, wasn't very professional. We didn't even know we could sell books. We had maybe 20 available copies. The rest of the books were there in the loft, but a couple of things were missing from them. One was the name of the photographer who did the photos front and back. Irene Young would be pissed if she didn't get credit, so we had a stamp made and dutifully stamped her name in red ink on the credit page. <laughs> the other thing missing from the book was a whole stanza, the last stanza of a poem called New York. Here's the stanza. Then entering the subway, pushing through the crowds at 34th, I saw a baby sucking desperately on its bottle, tears streaming down its tat, dark face. As it sat in its carriage, it stopped me. I turned, examined some flowers for sale, cloth on silky green leaves mounted on a comb. 
I plucked up a black one, a black rose, paid the guy a dollar. I love it. I'm softly fingering its petals on the subway home. It is so artificial, so dark and so beautiful. I thought, it is so artificial, so dark and beautiful, referred to New York. Now it strikes me that I was talking about my life. Line four should read, fat, dark face, not tat. So what happened once the party got going was that as people wanted copies of the book, I had to go into the back room and stamp Irene Young and the final stanza of New York into each copy. My book was called The Fresh Young Voice from the Plains. I had always figured if I had a book, I would want my face all over it. The experience was like television. Every book hanging off the end of someone else's hand was like another tiny monitor. As more and more people began to flow in, it meant that many more pictures of me were bobbing around the room. What a horror, particularly in relation to the people I didn't know. They would look down at their book, then up at me, oh, it's you. Here it was a big moment in my life, and to them it was just another party. I began to join that group. Some beer, some Coke, some people you know. I would go in the back, and people would offer me some Coke, and then I would offer mine to other people. People seemed surprised that I had my own Coke. Of course, it's my party. It's a self-serving event. <laughs> Allen Ginsberg asked me to sign his book. I must have stood there for five minutes drawing a complete blank. Hi, Alan, from one howl to another. <laughs> Dear Alan, I'm glad you think I'm a poet. Love, Eileen. I'm the only woman you like, right, Alan? <laughs> only the craziest thoughts passed through my mind. Finally, he started, getting he started getting embarrassed. Just sign it. Come by and write something better when you think of it. I scrawled something. I forget what it was. I was the fresh young voice from the plains. I felt so foolish signing books. Mark, you're going to kill yourself if you keep drinking the way you do. Me too, Eileen. The wrong lines kept flashing through my mind. In David's, I wrote, David, I just wrote something really horrible in someone's book. People I didn't know wanted copies, and I would put them off, and they'd offer mine. They'd go, come on, I'll pay for it. At the end, my pants were full of these wrinkled dollar bills. It made me feel kind of sleazy, but though Barbara was the most laissez-faire publisher ever, and I'm sure she didn't give a shit. Renee was skipping around. And this is where, that's Renee Ricard, and there was a, the Warhol movie, Chelsea Girls, so he's in the book. He was talking to Ted, who was there in his dark blue short sleeve shirt. Ted found my discomfort so amusing. How are you doing, Eileen? He put this faggy little turn on Eileen like it was a made-up name something I'm pretending to be. It sounded right. It sure amused Renee, who kept telling me how fabulous my book party was in a way which made me wonder if this wasn't the worst party of all time. <laughs> the girl musician was blowing her saxophone in the middle room with all her musician friends who were taking this party as an opportunity to play or impress each other or whatever musicians do. She seemed to think they wouldn't let her in on all their men things if they knew she was a lezzy, so I could barely get a hello out of her. My couple didn't come. I sort of moved in on this couple of poets that winter. I liked him, but I adored her, and that was all falling apart around this time, or at least, but at least they could come to my book party. I used to wear a Timex watch, and she was always asking me what time it was. I planned to give her a watch of her own at the party, but she didn't come. Suddenly, I had this extra watch. I also had guiltily bought him a purple striped tie. What was I going to do with that tie? <laughs> I asked my sister to hold the stuff in her bag. She wound up going back to Boston with the watch and the tie, and eventually they came back in the mail. Then I gave Mark Breeding the watch. The tie just hung out with my other ties for a few years until I realized I didn't wear ties. Yeah, my sister from Boston came to the party, a representative of the Mileses from Boston. Unfortunately, she had just broken up with her boyfriend the night before. 
She thought the trip would be good for her, a distraction. People always think that until they get a few drinks in them. I wore a striped boat neck shirt. There was a poem in my book about a dog named Scuppy who, stale, who sailed the seven seas and lived in his own private boat. I secretly knew that I was a dog who lived in a boat. The floors of my apartment had a definite slant, and the trees outside would get going in the wind, and I was always kind of staggering around, so it was a pretty natural image to grab onto. Vicky picked up on it and greeted me. Hey, Scuppy, I barked. She had the same shirt on. Mark told me he also considered buying that shirt and would have worn it as well. I guess it was 1982, and it was an obvious shirt to have that year. I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> um, so, okay. So I just want to close the whole inaugural feeling that we're having, in a, um, in a way that I think you'll you'll like. So, um, so you know, you know the um, the visual artist Zoe Leonard, and she had the, wrote this piece called um, "I Want a Dyke President," and she put it on the High Line. So there was this, this great event on November sixth in New York, where like a whole bunch of us came, and and like you know, it was Justin Vivian Bond, and um, just people you know read and performed and sang, and it was just like, and it was you know because it was two days before the election, and Hillary was going to win, we were just like, oh my god, you know, this is a great moment. And so I did run for president in 1992. And so she was like, maybe you could just kind of update your campaign. And I said, OK, I'll do that. And I thought about it, and I thought, I'll write like an acceptance speech. I'll just like accept the presidency. And so um, that's what, this is an acceptance speech. Like, is my fly down? OK. OK, first I want to say this feels incredible. To be female, to run and run and run and not see any end in sight, but maybe have a feeling that there's really no, no outside to this endeavor, this beautiful thing. You know, we don't have a single female on any of our bills. And what about two women, two women loving, or even more? A lot of women, a lot of money. Is there a message that I fail to receive that the face of woman cannot be on our money? And what about the house I just won, that white one? When I sit there, and, and if I sit there, and I gotta tell you, I'm not sure I wanna sit there. Some of you might remember my first campaign. Yes, that was back in 1992. Few men have run for 24 years. 25 by the time I stand and take the oath in January to serve my country. I did not quit. I stand here with you on this beautiful, rapturous, sunny day in New York to turn around. You have to get into the fiction that we're standing outside in New York on the fall. We're on the high line. Okay. Sunny day in New York to turn around, to look back, and look at all that we've won. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get back to that house, that White House. We often hear these words even as an explanation of what metonym means. Are you familiar with this term? Yes, I promise you a poetic presidency. The White House speaks is a metonym. Certainly that White House we speak of is not the whole government. Like Fred Moten says, it is incomplete. But it has come to be a symbol of it. And I think two things. I think whiteness. I think of the whiteness of the house, and I think of houseness. It houses the government. Now that I have won it, it offers to house me now. I now officially make that the White House is a homeless shelter. It is a complete disgrace that we have people without homes living on the streets in America. I have lived with them, not for long periods of time, but in the same way that I'm the first president who knows what women feel, because I'm a woman, I am one. I also have eaten chicken with the homeless. I ate at the Bowery Mission, very rubbery, very chewy chicken. Those chicken were not happy when they lived, and they are no happier being chewed on dead at the Bowery Mission 
And the chewers are not happy either, no. So here's the future. Good food at the White House for all the homeless in America. You know who the homeless are. They are military men and women who fought our pointless wars, who came home after each stupid, greedy war we have waged, and they got less. Is there a GI Bill for veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan? I'm not sure, but I don't think so. Can they buy a house? Who can buy a house? Under Miles, they have bought the White House. That is my gift. Also, I love saying under Miles. That's what I heard. <laughs> the White House will house the mentally ill, outpatiented during the great President Reagan, meaning he threw them out of the house, the mentally ill thrown out of the American house, and the alcoholics who do not have free and abundant and available treatment, because this country breaks our hearts. We will habit them too. We will occupy all government buildings and memorials, housing and holding and loving the homeless and the sick and the starving. We'll do what the statue says, you know, liberty. We'll take buildings and we will build buildings and our culture, our new America, will begin to live. Our government needs to be in the business of living, not dying. What else is a government for? The government will become more departmental. We'll take you in, you and your wonderful needs. We'll start with the Department of Women. Obviously, to say women matter and do matter so much and a lot, we need a distinct place in the government to specifically focus on female concerns, which is parity mainly, reforming Congress so that if America is increasingly diverse in a multitude of ways, our Congress must represent those groups percentage-wise. That's smart, don't you think? So if most of the people in America are female, so should be our government, right? America is not a department store. We want to do more in our country than shop online and at the mall. Let's face it, everyone is home shopping and yelling at each other on their computers. The malls are falling apart. The malls are pretty much gone. Let them go. We want to make real departments for who we really are. Not shopping. We will be stalwart. We will be strong. Let's go. Let's go out. We are out there now. We are on the high line. Yes. That's the way it works under Miles. Early on, I described a department of culture. We will have that. We will have art in America, not just a magazine. Just for starters, we will multiply the budget of the NEA by tenfold. We will bring back CEDA. That was like an art workers program we had in the 80s, but we will call it CEDA. CEDA, what? I don't know. I just got elected. I haven't worked everything out. But just think of the possibilities. See the sky, see the river over there, see the Whitney. A lot of people will be walking around appreciating, and we will pay them. There will also be, also be the hear the program, the smell the program. That's probably what you're going to do early on with all those you know, recovering veterans who don't have to live on the streets. Get them in on the see the, smell the, hear the programs. We're going to massively fund libraries open 24 hours, and they will not be filled with homeless people because they will have homes. So the libraries will be filled with people reading and watching movies and going into the conversation rooms and having conversations and so on. All education will be free. Trains will be free. Cars eventually will be banned. Cars are stupid. No more pumping oil, no more fracking. Everything will be driven by the sun or else be plugged in electrically. Electric something. There'll be lots of free food, a lot of archery. <laughs> Everyone will be a really good shot. We'll get good at aiming, intentions, not killing. Oh, yeah, and we'll send a lot of masseuses to Israel and Palestine. Everyone needs a good rub. 
No more pesticides here, anywhere. Lots of small farmers, an amazing number of stand-up comedians, and lots of rehearsal spaces and available musical instruments and learning centers for people like myself who would like to play something, perhaps a guitar. Nobody would be unemployed. Everyone would be learning Spanish or going to the sex center for a while, having ejaculation contests, or just looking at porn for a while and going out into the yard and helping the farmers improve the crops, just gardening, helping the flowers, distributing the flowers, see the flowers. When in doubt, always just being a see the person for a while. There'll be a whole lot of people encouraging people to see the. We want the see the to thoroughly come back. There'll be an increase in public computers like water, like air. Have we stopped the oil and the fracking early enough to protect the water and air? We hope so. But there will be a decrease in private computers with an enhanced desire to be here, exactly here where we are, which some would argue is there on the computer, which of course would be allowed. But being here will be cool. Some people meditating, other people just walking around smiling, feeling good about themselves, living shamelessly and glad. Guns would be buried. Guns would be in museums, and people would increasingly not want to go there. <laughs> Gun museums would die. What was that all about? <laughs> Money would become rare. I would have a radio show as your president, and also I might be on television, and also I might just want to talk to you. In the tradition of American presidents like Fiorello LaGuardia, the little flower, I would be President Edward Miles, the woman, changing my name very often. Would probably be good. I would like that. And I'll, I would write a new poem for you each week. I might just walk around saying it. And eventually, you would forget I was the president. I would go to the gym. There are people who like to manage things just like there are people who like to play cards. And the managers would change often enough, and they would keep the parks clean. America increasingly turning into one big park, one big festival of existence with unmarked toilets and nightly, daily events and free surfing lessons and free boards. Just put it back when you're done and a good bed for everyone. I just slept in the best bed last night, and I slept on the plane. Sleep is great. Nobody would be short of sleep. Everyone would be well-slept, chaotic, and loving-hearted, and have and all the time in the world to not kill, to love, and be president. Everyone, take your turn and dance. Dance now. I love my fellow citizens. It is good to win. Thank you. I feel like I had a bad dream last night that like the head of the FBI decided to steal the election by making shit up about me because I am female, but that wasn't true. And we are really here, undiluted, unmucked up, wide awake in America for once. See the, see the, see the all of you and your fabulous beauty and your power and your hope. Thanks for your vote, and I love you. Thanks. crying over that poem. Sorry. I, I know. Hands. I never felt as bad as I did that moment. Yeah. That, yeah, shit. I feel like they sat down and read that and then went, let's do everything exactly opposite. Ex exactly. Like everything. Right. Every detail. Fuck the libraries. We'll get rid of the libraries. I know. We won't have any dancing. That's over now. Bad. Um, I've got lots of questions. I'm maybe not going to ask them all because how long, how long have we got? I want to leave some time for you guys to ask questions. How are we doing? 20 minutes. I'm going to share it half and half. I'm going to ask questions for 10 minutes. And 20 minutes for everything? 20 minutes. Is that right? 20 minutes for everything? A bit longer. Good. Okay. Um, 
But the first thing I want to ask is, I read somewhere that you don't read your poems out loud until you're reading them in front of an audience. Oh, God, no. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. So what, how? I can't even imagine. How do you write them? Can you? I, well, I hear them in my head. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I think that the brain is like an echo chamber yeah. or something. I mean, it's sort of like I think the right the act of writing a poem is like the act of hearing, and so you kind of you kind of write in sound, I think, and so you're kind of it's sort of like a little bit like being in the dark and hearing something, and you just keep paying attention to that hearing, and that kind of guides the poem. And then, do they always work when you come to read them out? It well, feels I mean, like I edit, a high stakes thing to me. Oh, I don't mean that. I don't mean that I don't edit them or like you know like I write them and then I type them. And then I edit them, and then I decide if they're good or not. And then they, you know, either live in the pile of good ones or the pile of bad ones, and they change piles sometimes. But I think the thing about reading a poem out loud um, to yourself in your apartment is just that it's sort of like gross. And it's sort of like I'm not against <laughs> masturbating, but I mean, somehow it's sort of like a lower form of it. It just, you know, <laughs> Cheap masturbation. It just seems like, because I think the thing that's really incredible about you write a poem, and um, like the first, that, that, that long new poem, the first yeah. time I ever read it in public was so much fun. It's sort of like you write something and you have it in your head and you've never heard it. And, and it seems like the only real way to hear it is like in front of people, you know, and it's sort of like it gets, the poem gets held in a way. But also you, the poet, get to experience the poem like you did when you wrote it, you know, and you only have that experience in front of people. You don't have that sitting in your apartment going, yeah, you know. <laughs> so you, I kind of save it. For the, for the social experience, because I think a poem is that finally. It becomes alive socially. You know, I don't think you write, you don't even write it alone. You're kind of writing it with, with somebody hearing, though at first you're like that first audience. Yeah. That, that leads nicely into what I was going to ask first, which is one of the things that I really love in your work, is that there's all these kinds of 
intimacies, loves, fellowships running through it, but of different of different natures. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about how you're um, how you're sort of rooted in community, and particularly in terms of you know the many different kinds of New York school that you arise out of. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of like when you're writing in Chelsea Girls about James Schuyler, and right. you describe him as an enormous sunflower. It feels like you're coming out of this garden, and I want to I want you to say something about that garden. Like I'm coming out of a, what was, the, what was the end like of Like you're that? kind of coming out of a garden, these, these different people, and I want to know, well, there know was, about I that. I mean, there were, so many, there were so many things embedded in that description. Like one thing about Jimmy Schuyler is he'd love flowers. He wrote about flowers. He lived yeah. with flowers. To know him was to bring him flowers. You know, it was just part of the, the, the kind of the love of this man and his work, you know. And so it was just, it was, that was, you know, very communal, that gesture in itself. But I don't know, I, just, I mean, like, I think, you know, like, we live in so many, I mean, I think the thing, it's, it's very true right now, like, when you think about how we live, we live in so many different places and so many different lives, and they're so dispersed, there's almost no way of knowing how anybody else lives, you know? And so I think, in a way, the act of writing is this sticky thing, where you get to, you get to show all the places where your body goes, and a little bit of something sticks to you everywhere you are. Like, it's, it's relationship. And so it's sort of like writing is, is, is how you get to download that, that sensation. You yeah. know, because it's so lonely, right? It's so lonely being alive. It's so lonely living in this kind of strange collective, but not that, you know, and like, and I mean, it's, like in New York, there was a thing that it used to happen to me all the time, but it's not, I'm not so constantly in New York now, which is that I would go to the poetry reading and then I would go to the lesbian bar and I would go to the art gallery and I would see somebody in all three places and I would, we would be like, amazing, you know? And we would go for like six months, me and that person. We would just keep seeing each other every place. And so you knew that somebody was living a parallel life and then it would cease. Mm -hmm. And then you wouldn't see them for 10 years. You know, and I think that's so much the urban experience. Yeah. You know, and part of the upside of of disasters like 9-11 and and probably tomorrow and and Hurricane Sandy and all the things that ever happened to me in New York is that like all the relationships open up. You sort of have that kind of you see those people and you and you everybody ever saw who you've begun to not say hello to in the street, you suddenly say hello to. Yeah. You know? But I think it's sort of like a writing or a poem is the regular practice of that experience, you know. It's kind of the most yeah. beautiful quote I've ever heard in literature is the Antonin Artaud line about we must, the artist must, must wear their internal organs on the outside of their body like jewels, you know, and I think, mm-hmm. I think a poem hopefully is that. Mm. And that feels to me more like a kind of viable resistance than almost anything, you know, there's a kind of politics that you can have, but there's also something about our warmth and our love for each other and our communities that is right. in itself. I know, and you said the word, I think we, we were all going to be living I mean, I just whenever I read about, you know, like Beckett, and Beckett was a member of the resistance, I was like, how interesting. That weird guy was a member of the resistance. <laughs> and I feel like now we must all be that. Yeah. You know, and, and, and reinvent what that and means. And make that. Yeah, yeah. In every single way, you know. Okay, so you say this fantastic thing. Maybe, um, I can't remember what interview it was, but you say, I want politics to be as installed in the poem as the flower would be. That's Jim's kind of... Um, I, I want to know. I want to know what it means to be a poet who engages with politics right now. What I mean, what that can be, and what that can be for poetry, and what that can be for politics. How can you not be that? How can yeah. you absolutely that? You know, it's yeah. like that. That first, that Kenny poem I wrote. I think it was a real breakthrough poem for me at the time because I feel like I didn't know how to make. I mean, it was eighties New York. There was so much homelessness. There was so much AIDS. There was so little of it being on the news, and it was like, and yet I still didn't know how to 
write a political poem. And then when I just suddenly, I, I suddenly, I was on the train with somebody and I just started to bullshit her about who I was. And I was like, I actually come from a very rich family. And she was, you're kidding. And I said, well, yeah. And I started lying in that way you used to when you were hitchhiking when you were like a teenager. You know, I was like, I'm French, you know? And, and as I saw her, you know, and I realized that if I was somebody else, i.e. a Kennedy, I would have the right to all this political. But it was sort of like after that, after I had the sensation, I started to understand that it was just like, the recognition of my daily life is always political, you know, whether it's talking about love or an incident on the street or even, even you know, like one of the coolest things I ever heard, like I went to McDowell, we know McDowell, yeah. right? It's like this great artist colony in New Hampshire and I went to a drugstore in, in Peterborough where McDowell is and they had, it, it, there was a book rack and I walked up to the book rack and there was a book called the blood of the lamb. And I was like, what the fuck is that? And I picked up the book and I realized I was in a, they had a Christian book rack in the drugstore. <laughs> it was like so American, right? And I was just reading, and they started reading about Lucifer, which is always very exciting to an ex-Catholic Lucifer. I just get fought on the name. And I'm reading about it, and they explained that the reason Lucifer was thrown out of heaven was that he changed the order of the sacred words. You know, and now that that's poetry. If we, you know, yeah, and yeah. I and I think it's like even that to change the order of what we hear is 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 a political act, mm. and because of the obedience demands, you say it like that and write that that way. I mean, like if if, um, if Trump wants to dissolve the NEA, it's because you know it's because a no poet in America wanted to read for him tomorrow. You know, but it's also just like the artist, artist who open. You can't, you can't make it be like this or that. You know. Yeah. And there's nothing they can get from it. So it's like, yeah, it's just art is political. I mean, how is it not? You know. Yeah. I can think of some terrible conservative artists who I think are entirely political. It's just that they don't know that that's what they're doing. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay, and the other thing that, I mean, there are a million things I love about your poems, but another thing that I really love is the presence of the body inside it. You know, uh -huh. there's this kind of, well, not poetry, but the, right. the physical, messy, sexy, right. aging body is there. And I want to know, like, why does are that... Are you aging? Who's like... No, that was me. Oh, I'm right. getting really old. I'm going to be 40. Like, oh, like, no. Yeah, it's depressing me. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Because you're always the wrong body. Yeah. You know, and I think that, that, you know, like, and you know that, we all know that in so many different ways. You know, certainly every woman knows that I'm the wrong body. The world's not built for me. Mm -hmm. You know, so asserting the right body is, is or asserting, asserting the wrong body and say that, saying that that's right, again, is, is, is so important. So it's just like every way that, I mean, I couldn't believe that Larry David got to do on film the thing that I've always wanted to see on film all my life, which is being female, going to the toilet in a public setting, and realizing there's no toilet paper. And then you knock on the door, and you're like, do you have any toilet paper over there? And the hand comes over with a piece of toilet paper, which is such a common female, and I'd never seen that in a film. Fucking Larry David does it on Curb Your Enthusiasm. I was like, he got there first, you know? But it's sort of like, but it was just that, it was so exciting, because I realized my body had never been to the bathroom on television, you know? And then what does it mean that it's there? Well, we start, we start to be part of the world. You know, it's like every time you do the wrong thing, make, you make the wrong thing right, you just include yourself. And it just, it opens for a moment, even for a moment, you know, and somebody, you know, like stupid, the stupid L word, stupid show, was a spectator sport for at least one season where 
rooms for full of women were crowded just to see themselves for the first time. I mean, it's not as simple as representation, but, but I think you know what I'm saying. You know? Yeah, I think that especially that last piece that you read, it feels to me like door after door opens in me of just feeling like these things are being acknowledged. These, these spaces and needs are being acknowledged. And it's really moving. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, I thought if Hillary Clinton was the president, she would do something as obvious, making there be a department of women, which seems so like obvious and maybe unnecessary, except that how do you begin except to, to stress what's absent and make it visible, mm. you know? Yeah, as opposed to closing down the department of stopping violence against women, which is what they just did today. Whatever. Um, so there's something great that goes on in your individual poems. That's, there's this sort of incredible precision, but at the same time, they're very disorientating. They kind mm -hmm. of take tacks and move around. They've got, they've got this sort of movement about them. And I want to know about, about that, how, what's going on there. How... Well, you're just, well, you're just grabbing stuff, and you're, t and you're running for your life in a way. Sometimes I feel like, like mm -hmm. writing a poem is like you're trying to catch a train. You know, and you're like, I've just got to get on that train and stuff. And you're carrying all this stuff. You're carrying too much. You'll never make it to the train if you worry about what you're carrying. So you're dropping stuff, you know. And I think that's the natural mm -hmm. way of apprehending because we're not listening. I mean, like, I'm, I'm up here yakking or yakking, you know, and you're like, you hear something that's interesting, and then your mind goes off to something else. It's like just consciousness is just full of holes. Yeah. And I think you have to, it seems to me a generous act to write work that's full of holes so that people's mind can wander you know, and yeah. come back. You know, the more open it is, the more it's receptive. Yeah. You know, and again, I say, I say that because I come from a very conservative, Catholic, you know, background that it was just like, you know, the nun would be like, are you listening? And then we'd, you know, the, way the education was answering questions and giving back a precise thing, you know, and not at all. When I went to college, I was like, oh my God, we're like talking. I was like, what is this? You know, and so I, I feel like I'm always, I mean, like I was so excited by the avant-garde of the 70s and the 80s in New York and realizing you could just sort of walk out and smoke a cigarette. You could just kind of, it was like opera was in the 18th century. You just, it was big and open and generous and, and nobody, you weren't trapped by the event. You were like allowed in this way, you know, and I thought I want to be here, you know. Like a 12-hour Robert Wilson piece didn't mean you had to sit there obediently for 12 hours. You know, you'd go have a sandwich, come back. Yeah. That's, that leads me very nicely to the thing that I was going to say next, which is um, you were talking about personalism, the Frank O'Hara manifesto, and how something very exciting for you happens there, where he starts talking about the poem as a telephone. Uh-huh, right. And that being a sort of significant moment for your poetry. Right. And I wondered if you could talk about that, but also... If you could talk a bit about, you know, you use Twitter and you use Instagram and what those sort of technologies are permitting or allowing to happen in poetry as well. Well, I feel like, you know, technology is just like, you know, just technology is like war. Like, remember that there was that book that came out in the 90s, War in the Age of Intelligent Machines, a guy named Manuel Delanda, and he talked about how every kind of war changed the way we thought and organized reality, you know, and the end of the story was, was um, the internet, you know, which was a weapon, a piece of war, you know, with the, that we've then appropriated and it's, it's changed the way we organize things. I mean, when O'Hara picked up the phone, and it, I mean, when he, he didn't pick it up, he imagined picking it up, because, but the, the, even that, it was a conceptual moment, and when he conceived of picking up a poem, um, what a poem, <laughs> When he conceived of picking up the phone, what a poem is or was changed. A poem would never be the same again because he realized, I could just call you. 
why would I keep writing this poem, you know, and stuff. And that changed the feeling of the poem. And so I think yeah. every time we have a new kind of, you know, it's like Twitter, I think, is really promoting poetry and poetry is promoting Twitter, you know, because we're, we're these are fragmented um, measures. You know, and I think we live in a fragmented time. And suddenly it was like, yeah, like who is reading a novel? I mean, lots of people are reading novels, but not as many as used to. Mm. You know, and who is watching a TV show? Everybody's watching a TV show. And who is reading a poem? I think everybody's reading a poem. You know, because if you just look at your feed every day, whether it's you know whether there are things by your friends or I mean, I walk down the street and you have a great, a great line, and I think, is this a tweet or a poem? You know, and I don't know the difference, and that is a poetic fact. Yeah. That changes poetry and communication that I don't know. Yeah, which you is know? exactly what Frank's doing in his phones, that you can feel that some of the lines are lines that he said on the phone or heard on the phone. Right, right. Yeah. 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 Uh, guys, I, I want to open it out to you at this point. Does anybody? We have a microphone that will come right to you. Possibly have a question. Here it is. Whoa. <laughs> Take that phallic instrument and speak. <laughs> Take it over there. Um, <laughs> Um, thank you so much for that. Um, so this is kind of related to Olivia's question about different kinds of relationships, but I was wondering if Eileen could tell us a bit about how you first encountered the Italian feminist concept of affidamento or entrustment, and how you've engaged with that since. Oh, I mean, it was in a rigore. You know, it was whatever book was it? Jure two L? Not Jure two L. Is that the? I can't remember the name of the book. Yeah, I think I mean it was definitely a rigor ray, and and I just it was so like it was like it was it was both what there was and what there wasn't, and what what I wanted, you know. I mean it's sort of like the I remember just coming to New York in the '70s, and people were like, have you read Pound, you know? And there was just like these guys that I had to read, and it was usually a man saying it to me, and I thought I don't need to read. I've read you. I don't need to read Pound, you know. But it was like there wasn't <laughs> that same pressure to read this woman or read that woman, you know. But there were, but there were, you know, there were women who were just. I mean, like Alice Nolly was teaching a workshop, and I just remember it was just like it just like the room was incredible, and it changed everything. And I just wanted to be. And there was a kind of talking poetics that was around in the seventies too, and it was just like when I. It was like this one thing, which is. I mean, I almost like this thing more than literature. You know, that we're doing, you know, it's sort yeah. of like the thing when you just you talk and think out loud and you don't know what's going to happen next and what's going to be said and what you're going to ask and this wonderful openness and, and just the necessity of, so of, of that happening in time between women, you know, because all I ever heard was about was lineage, you know, and, and, and yet lineage always meant men to men, men to men, men to men. No matter how many women read the men, when they talked about lineage, they would never include the women in the list. And it just finally, it's sort of like, it's not that I don't read men, I read so many men. But it's sort of like what I have and give to other women is 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 kind of something that light, lights things up. I think. I mean, when I picked up Violet Leduc, I thought <laughs> I can write I can write fiction, you know, because mm. it was this it was this meta poetry fiction that I had never seen before, and I think it wasn't by accident that it, that it was a female author, you know, that her links I could I could see I could get they were they were palpable to me. Yeah. Um, hi, Eileen. Thanks very much for your um, amazing. Reading, um, I guess, it, like in in your poetry, um, there's that sense of of name, like name naming people, right? So you talk about Ted uh, in in the, in your reading from the Chelsea Girls. You uh -huh. talk about Ted and and Renee and, and these kind of things. Um, I guess, I guess, uh, like as those people in in downtown New York were were drifting away from New York or or were, or were dying, 
Because <laughs> well, um, that was how they were drifting away. Well, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Um, I guess uh, was there, was there a moment where where it changed for you from like naming friends that were alive and they were they were they were in downtown and are part of the community, and that, and there was a vibrant community. Where it, was there a moment where you still wanted to include them in your poems, but the the inclusion was different? You you realised that you were commemorating their memory or memorialising them or something. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, like, luckily, I think most of the people in Chelsea, I mean, they're now dead, but they were alive when I wrote the book, you know? Um, though, I mean, like, say, in Inferno, <coughs> Kathy Acker wasn't alive when I wrote the book, and it felt like what was exciting was to say awful things about her. Because I, I endlessly, you know, it's just like I endlessly think the thing about living and dying is that, like, we get all like, oh, you know, you know, and I, you know, I, I started thinking that way about Robert Lowell, you know, when he died. I just thought everybody was so like. <laughs> that poem's so great. Yeah, I feel like it was the only, the first punk thing I ever did, or maybe the only punk thing I ever did, was to realize that when a, when a poet or an artist dies, you should just. Um, say shit about them, you know? And when they're alive, you should love them and support them, and you know? Um, but I'm not sure that's really your, your question. But, um, but it's just, I mean, I think it's to talk about a person, you know, like, like in, a, in a kind of a dirty or a snide or a nasty or just a, mi a realistic mixed way is to give them, I think, to give them life again. You know, because I think there's this embalmed thing that happens when somebody dies, they become sort of precious. You know, and I think it's just, it's just really interesting trick to not, I, I never wanted to write a memoir. I've, I've written a memoir about my dog. That's my next book. But mostly it's like when I've written stuff, I've called it fiction because I didn't want to like have it be like, oh, Ted, or, you know, or I knew this person, or my life. Oh, my God, I was there in 75. You know, I was like, who wants that? You know, and the thing is to sort of be a little bit anonymous moving through the world that was truly alive in the time that you're writing about. I mean, I feel like I, you know, I mean, I just, I feel like the, the literature isn't the, um, um, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, literature isn't the art form that I'm comparing my, I mean, I want it to be, um, like, I think to, to start to write in the 70s was to, to kind of want a, a kind of a documentary experience. You know, it's sort of like the, all the things that were new when I was pretty young were like new journalism, which was wild, hippie, chaotic prose that was fact and fiction, and they were kind of mixed, and, and there was all this documentary stuff, and it was like, is that fiction or is that, is that nonfiction? And I think those lines are so blurred, and it seems so important to blur those things, to blur the lines between poetry and, and you know, novels, and, you know, just to, to say that there, there is one thing that is being made here, you know, and it's a representation of the moment. Um, I really loved your acceptance speech that you did just now. And um, I was interested in your focus on how you would have kind of opened up this world to people seeing things and experiencing things and people being able to do art at their leisure and, you know, being very accessible. Archery, most importantly. And archery, art and up. archery. Yeah. Um, and I imagine when you believed that Hillary Clinton was going to be president, you thought that you know, the arts would become or, or remain accessible. And as we know, Trump is kind of going to shut down access to things like that. Do you feel the responsibility as an artist to campaign or to try and open it up now that Trump will be president? 
I mean, I just think, I mean, I think it just calls for all of us to just make tons of stuff and to, to have so many events and so many different ways of distributing work and to like, you know, it's, it's like they can cut off, as we know, they can cut off the funding to the, I mean, like how many of us are actually being supported by the National Endowment? You know, like maybe more than I know, but, but mm. still it's sort of like people, people, you know, I think we've all like started off as artists on no budgets, you know, and it isn't right and it isn't, but I think that, that to, to kind of like burst forth with like an explosion of, of art making is the only appropriate response. You know, is to is to kind of absolutely say fuck you to it. I do, I do. I mean, I think it's going to create. I mean, it's sort of like when people talked about what happened with Perestroika and and the kind of confusion, you know, and that that they had an incredible underground publishing scene in Russia that they've never figured out. You know, they've never quite figured it out. You know, since that that you know, like suppose it. You know, like it was you know perestroika and then mega capitalism and and you know and it's sort of but but I think there was a they they thrived. I mean, it's sort of like it's not it's not good news, but I think art actually can can really be so even more vivid in in times of duress. And we're we're about to find out what that's like. You know. I think there's something else in your work that I always find really, I don't know, comforting or exciting that's about just taking pleasure in daily life as well and mm -hmm. how powerfully resistant that is to these sort of fascistic orders of just getting a kick out of walking down the road smoking a cigarette and looking at the leaves of a tree. Like right. That, right. T those pleasures are ours. They're our possession. And that, that makes me feel powerful. Yeah. Well, I think the claim of art is the claim of time. You know, and to say this is, and I think, you know, like, this is my time, this is my moment, this mm. is where I'm living and working. Because I think it's sort of like the stu the true studio is the mind, you know? And so it's to, to not to not let that thing be, you know, shut down or shrunken by, you know. I mean, it's like we're all oppre so oppressed by this conversation we're endlessly having about, oh, my God. We don't know what it is that starts tomorrow and is starting in this country and is starting all over the world, you know? Mm. And it's sort of like, so there's got to be this two, th it seems like there's two things, a way in which we want to share information and be aware of what's happening and just figure out some way to absolutely unplug from it, you know? And I think there's all sorts of ways to do that, you know? And it, I think a lot of it is moving, moving your body freely and, and somehow being able to, you know, like, tap into the moment as lived and not always be experiencing the threat of information. It's information. We're so fucked with so much information. And I think we have to kind of push it away and kind of be here. I mean, this is it, right? You know, it's just like the, just that we're like sitting in a room together tonight for whatever purpose. You know, mm. I feel like I'm like sort of an accident to work, you know. Yeah. That having conversations, I feel like, is such a radical act right now. Just listening to somebody else, saying things to somebody, taking the risk of saying things to somebody, feels feels exciting to me. Still, it feels yeah. like a place where things happen. Right, right. I mean, every every place I've been, whether it was a party or a meeting or a reading or a teaching, I I could taught I taught in California last week, and I, you know, like I don't. I used to, I used to teach more, and I'm I mean I'm sort of like I don't have to teach anymore. This is great, you know. And but actually, teaching was incredible. You know, and I forgot how great teaching is because we have amazing conversations, and 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 it was political, you know, and that was so beautiful, you know. So I feel like it's sort of like all sorts of all kinds of work. Work is, you know, work is real. Yeah. Um, hello. Um, I apologize. I was a bit late, so I'm sorry if you covered this at the beginning before I came in, but I was wondering, 
why you've come here at this time and what else you're doing while you're in the UK. Oh, well, I think... I Did think, you cover um, that at the beginning? Well, I think the hope was when these books came out, I think they came out in August. And so there was, you know, like, I, they were like, we have to do a tour, you know, and, and, and it was basically waiting for somebody to pay for it. So are you doing lots of other gigs in? Yeah, well, world. I'm going to do a lot in the UK. I'm going to be in. I'm going to be in Manchester and Oxford, and then I'll be at Goldsmiths in London this week, and I'm going to be in Nottingham, and and later on in Belfast and Dublin. But in between Switzerland and, and Italy, and Switzerland had the Switzerland bought the plane ticket. <laughs> So oh, there's good. always that question, like, who's going to pay? You know? And the other thing I wanted to ask, which is quite Philistine of me. But I love living, I, I love reading, I mean, I only sort of discovered the UK a few years ago, and I was like, oh, oh. you know? Like, like, I came here, like, in the 70s, and I go, oh. Like, London, I, I like outside of London, but I didn't get London. I thought, this is weird, you know? And then I came here, you know, a few years ago, and I met, you know, like, I met Sophie, I met Ruth, I mean, I, I just made these friends, you know? And then we met last time I was here, you know, so it suddenly I realized there was a connection that I didn't understand or hadn't had, you know. So, like, it's hard to know when, you know, it's sort of like I know every, you know, I know I have poet friends and artists in the States, but I just didn't know I knew anybody here. And, but what, where were you going? My Philistine question next. Philistine? Yeah. Look. If I may. Yeah, please. What do you think about your character? The one that's based on you in Transparent. I, you know, I knew somebody was going to ask that. Well, it's not, it's not me, which I think is a great relief. You know, it's sort of like the fact that that character was being evolved before I even came onto the scene was interesting. I mean, like the character preceded me. And then the writers, one of the writers was a poet who I had worked with. And she was like, this, this character sounds like Eileen Miles. And then weirdly, I was on a panel with Jill Soloway a couple of months later. And then she had already been, she had been researching me in that time in between. But still, it's like, so then once I was in touch with the show, they started saying, well, would you wear this, you know, and showing me these. And I was like, shirt would be a little tighter, the jeans would be a little tighter. But they actually, you know, it's television. They don't care what you say. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like, well, like we're going to watch what, I love, hap what happens to I Love Dick as a TV show. Mm -hmm. Because it's sort of like they buy a book. And now I'll take this part, and we'll take this part, and we'll take this part, and we'll put it over here, you know? And so there's no, I don't think there's, you know, like probably it would be a mistake to be too loyal to an object. So in the case of like Eileen Miles, it was like, even though they asked me how I liked Cherry Jones's wardrobe, nobody actually gave a shit what I said. And she showed up in the, the vest and the big baggy shirt, you know? And, and the, only, the only real, I mean, my mate, mate, and they cut her hair like, but the hair was pretty. In fact, they cut her hair like mine, but my hair wasn't like that by the time, you know, and I was like, it looks pretty good. I think I'm going to start wearing my hair like that again, <laughs> you know. But, but, they, but they used my actual poems, which was great, you know, and that was, and that, you know, bought me a, a window in my house in, in Texas, you know. Um, but then the joke, Cherry's joke about the, the people who date, um, what are they, the Pfeffermans, or that they're transitories. You know, so she, I don't know that she's on the show anymore. So my I may my moment might be passed with season three. You know, um, <laughs> so it goes right. Tell me about the um, the new book and Rosie. Oh well, um, I had an amazing pit bull named Rosie who lived from 1990 to 2006, and so she lived in New York with me and in Provincetown, and then. Um, she was an amazing dog, and when I got her, I felt like, 
I looked in her. She was my first dog, and I'd wanted a dog all my life. And so when I got her, I just looked in her eyes, and I thought, oh my God, it's my father. You know? And my dad was this great guy who was an alcoholic and died when I was 11, and he was 44. And so he's, I mean, he's like the, you know, the person you can't stop writing about, you know? But I felt, it, I mean, he was a funny man. And so he very much would come back as my dog and to hang out with me for another 16 or so years. And so it's sort of like right away, there was just kind of a, a made-up thing about who this dog was, as well as the fact that this dog was. So she was like a real companion in so many ways. And so I, I started to write the book when she was dying. And, um, and then I kept, it was, it's, it was a challenge, like I think all writing is. Like I think when I teach, I tell people the thing that's funny about these prompts, like you know, you give, you're always teaching workshops and you give them these prompts and they're like, you know. And I said, this is, this is what your career will be. You will just start giving yourself prompts and that's your next book, right? Mm. So I think with Rosie, once I, the dog, and I wanted it, you know, there, there's a lot of dog books and, um, and sappy ones. And so I thought I want to write a, you know, an edgy dog book, you know, start with a do dog, dies. dog just dies, the dog's dead, you know? But obviously that's not, you know, it was like, then I started to think about who else she was and I thought she's my father. And then she became somebody else, a spiritual leader later on. And so it just became, you know, and then it became a way to talk about alcoholism, which I am and my dad is, and, and, and just reading, redesigning 12-step programs under the, the moniker of dog rather than God, you know. And, and so it just became a very, you know, like really fun, trippy, you know, and then it just, it just kept making, you know, like I went to McDowell and I was telling people about, the, you know, my dad and the dog, and they were like, is Rosie going to talk? And I was like, Ugh. So like McDowell, is Rosie going to talk? And then I was like, under what conditions would Rosie talk? And I thought, well, I made these. Sitting in your cabin typing. What's that? Sitting in your cabin typing. Her, her doing that? you in your McDowell cabin. Right, that's the pause, yeah, the, the yeah. thinking pause. So I, think I made these um, puppets when I was a child, after school programs, you know, and I have these like amazing puppets and I still own them. And I thought, oh, if the puppets had a talk show, and invited Rosie onto the show, of course she would talk. So there's a chapter, the puppets talk show, and then they talk about the bond between puppets and dogs and the oppression, you know, by humans. And they kind of like, you know, so it's a lot of, you know, it's like a lot of moving parts that were just, you know, it, it, it always takes me a million years to finish a book, and, but it's very exciting. It's coming out in the fall. I can't wait. Yeah, it's called Afterglow. Yeah. Does anyone have any, probably one last question? Oh, okay. oh my god, yay. Man at the camera. Oh, cool. What's this? It's a question from uh, Facebook. A question from, uh, oh, hang on. It was uh, Jessica on Facebook. Uh, she asked, how did you get so optimistic in an intelligent way? <laughs> that is a great last question, Jessica That's from Facebook. That's really funny. <laughs> huh. God, I mean, I could say because I'm stupid. <laughs> You know, um, because I'm a Sagittarius. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's, I mean, it also is just like there is a, there, this is kind of very corny, but I think there is an American thing, you know, about optimism, and it's like our burden. You know, it's sort of like I remember there's a writer, William Dean Howells, and he was like, the American, you know, like a 19th century writer, and he was like, the American, that sunny side of life, which is just what we all hate, and yet there's a certain burden to occupy that space in some way. And I think I'm kind of a Buddhist too. I think I kind of want there to be a certain kind of joy, you know, which, and I can't help being wildly intelligent. So the, the pieces meet in a strange cylinder, which is myself, yeah. I think it's a lot of smart 
optimistic. I mean, I think it's crucial at this moment. I mean, I think that's one of the truest things people keep saying politically about this is we, you know, like, matter how savage it feels, like we have to, I mean, like, because I think it's sort of like the drive to, to find pleasure and joy and happiness, yeah. like, makes us want to move. You know, I think just, in, you know, like, negativity, just like it shrinks, you know, and I think we need these two factors in order to, you know, just kind of survive. But TV shows, you know, like it's comedy too. It's like TV shows growing up, they always ended with laughter. It was just like so fucked up. You know, the horrible family. <laughs> it was like, you know, and I think that's sort of the American tragedy is comedy, you know. Okay, so maybe I've got one last question considering the timing Goody. of this event, which is, have you lost faith with America? Oh, God, that's such a horrible question. I'm sorry. Um, well. I don't know because but I feel like we're no, all asking it, right? No, like there's no. a dream of America, and everyone's invested in it in some way. I think things aren't as bad. I think the the, the, the sad part of this election, we had a coup d'état. Mm. You know, I think the sad the thing. I, I'm I'm totally. I've lost faith in the political class and the media class because they're not doing their job. Mm. You know, that's the that's the real. I mean, there was a it was a it was a steal. It's a kleptocracy. I mean, it's just like. The writing keeps getting better and better, assembling the, th the, the three-pronged, you know, like the FBI, which was, you know, a, a cabal of, of Giuliani and, and, you know, all sorts of, like, the New York Police Department. It's crazy how many people got involved in that thing of making that big brouhaha about the emails, which actually contained nothing. And then Russia and, 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 and the Voting Rights Act, you know, the softening of, like, if, if there's a documentary about Anita Hill, right, mm -hmm. you know, and which is not... Well, you said that on Twitter the other day about yeah, Anita Yeah, it's not the greatest documentary, but the story is really amazing because it's sort of like when she, um, his name has flown out of my head, Clarence Thomas. Thomas. You know, it's sort of like there were like 18 women behind her with sexual assault charges against that guy. And Teddy Kennedy and Joe Biden... You see snarky, laughing, like, we don't want to hear from all these women. We want to put this African-American man. Mm -hmm. And it's like, he's so much one of the people who has spearheaded the, the, you know, like softening the Voting Rights Act. So many, so many votes were purged, so many Democratic. So the election was stolen, you know? And the thing, I think, but the thing, yeah, the thing I've totally lost faith in is, is there being any, any lever. You keep looking towards tomorrow and thinking, isn't there somebody that rides in on a horse? And, shoots the rope and the hanging man falls and America doesn't get, you know, seized by this dumb fuck, mm. you know, and, and everything that he represents. And so I think that's the real horror of it is there were, I mean, since before the election, I was just writing on Twitter, coup d'etat, coup d'etat. How could you, how could you have the head of the FBI do something that's never been done before and nobody, nobody really complained, mm. you know, and that's, and I think it's, it, the heart of it is just the sexism, the total like, like, would all those forces have symboled behind stopping a man from becoming president of the United States? I don't think so. You know, or would the political class and the media class have come forward and understood this being done to America and to our government and to our nation if it was done to a man? Mm -hmm. Certainly. You know, so I think the othering of the female is so is so what this is all about. Mm -hmm. You know, that it's absolutely it wasn't done to it wasn't done to America. It was done to Hillary Clinton. If she won, she would have been the president of it because she didn't win because they stole it from her in this horrible way. We're just going to act like that didn't happen and they're all going to talk about, you know, Joe Biden 2020. Mm -hmm. It was like, fuck you, buddy. You know, so I think it's, you know, I think it's a real, it's a real crime against women, you know, 
among, as well as everybody else. But that moment, and also intersectionality, as we call it, right? It's like if those white guys got that by not standing up for that African American woman, you know, if they didn't, if they, if they got that that was their own freedom that they were losing in that moment, and they didn't get it because again, she wasn't them, you know. And that lack of identification is is just a human act of violence, you know. And that's what you know. It's like American history: slavery, genocide, and 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 tomorrow, you know. And yet, that identification is something that I think can happen in art. That learning to empathize and see other people's realities that's does what, happen inside us. That's what we must do that's more, more hope, crucially yes. than ever. Yeah. You know? And I think men are starting to get it that this fuck them too. You know? I mean, and they certainly will in the next four years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Olivia Eileen, thank you so much. That, yeah. was, that was absolutely marvelous. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank, thank you, viewers on the live stream. Uh, Thanks for listening. You can unlock the entire LRB archive for free for 24 hours by visiting lrb.co.uk forward slash open. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.